Good afternoon. Thank you once again for joining me. Julian Campbell here. We've got another interesting show lined up for you this week. But later in the program, as usual, we're going to have our Minute on Innovation with Christina Sikiotis. We're going to be looking at uh, what one of the banks is doing in an innovative way. Also talking with Tony Vidray from AV Chartered Accountants about uh, accounting for your foreign income. Right now we're going to have a chat with Rebecca McKenzie from Baker Love Lawyers about the difference between contractors and employees. Good afternoon, Rebecca. Good afternoon, Julian. And thanks for joining us again. Thank you for having me on again. And this is sort of a a follow-on from what we talked about last time. So uh, what exactly is the difference between an independent contractor and an employee? Well, whether a worker is an employee or an independent contractor is a very important question, Julian, because some very significant legal consequences can flow from it. So while some businesses might be able to say with certainty, this person is an employee and this person is a contractor, in some cases the dividing line between the two can be blurred. And this is where the courts can get involved and things can get very messy and expensive. Um, So as a starting point, in, in looking at whether someone is an employee or a contractor, you have to look at the totality of the relationship and its features. So over time, a number of tests through the courts in Australia have built up in in relation to assessing the true nature of engagement. So very basically, an employee is someone who works under a contract of service. So they have usually what's an exclusive employment relationship with an employer and they're economically dependent on their employer. Um, Another way to engage the services of a worker, though, is through what's called a contract for service, which means that the worker is independently providing their services to the principal for a fee and the contractor will usually be operating their own business. So does this distinction really matter between the um, you know, employment relationship, whether it's a contractor or an employee? It, it really does, Julian, and, and the, the distinction matters in several important respects um, because the classification of the status of the worker can affect their rights and obligations to each other and also to third parties. So, for example, um, there are very different treatments with respect to uh, taxation obligations, um, superannuation payments and workplace entitlements and liabilities, just to name a few issues. So when I say liabilities and entitlements, I mean things like whether a worker is entitled to accrue annual leave or holiday leave, um, their minimum rates of pay and their rights on termination. Um, There are also other really important areas like workers' compensation and who pays compensation for any injury or or loss to a third party. Um, So as some of your um, business listeners would no doubt be aware, as an employer, you're required to have adequate workers' compensation insurance to cover all of your employees, but generally that's not the case with independent contractors because they're meant to be running their own business and being independent. They're liable to have their own workers' compensation insurance, although there can be some exceptions to this, Julian. Um, there's another very important legal concept called vicarious liability, which some of your listeners may have heard of. Now, that means that an employer is generally legal responsible for any wrongful acts or omissions of its employees. Now, that type of liability doesn't exist in the independent contracting relationship. Um, Although, um, as with lots of things, there are are some exceptions to this with respect to work health and safety laws and anti-discrimination and that sort of thing. But as you can see, Julian, it's not always clear-cut. So what are some of the features of a true independent contracting relationship? Yeah, 
there are actually many factors that are taken into account in determining whether a relationship is a true independent contracting relationship. Now, it's really not just a matter of saying, well, this feature exists, so it's a contracting relationship, or these few factors stack up, so I don't have to pay this worker any superannuation entitlements. It's really a matter of assessing a variety of factors, um, things like the degree of control over the worker, um, whether there's a written contract between the parties, um, whether the worker's really integrated into the organisation or whether they're quite separate from the organisation, um, things like how and where work is undertaken and whether the worker's required to wear a uniform um, and have their own tools and equipment. That sort of thing um, comes into play in determining what the true nature of the relationship is. Another important thing to to take into account is whether the contractor has flexibility to work for other businesses as well or whether they're tied to the one principle. If they're generally tied to the one principle, then that can sometimes indicate an actual employment relationship. So there are many factors which come into play. Um, there was actually a recent um, sham contracting intervention in 2011 and industries like um, the hair and beauty industry, uh, the cleaning industry and call centre industries actually underwent a massive audit by the Fair Work Ombudsman and this actually resulted in many companies and directors being prosecuted and fined many thousands of dollars because workers were labelled as contractors but they were actually found to be employees. Well, does it really matter whether the terminology is used uh, if it's more the actual reality of the arrangement in place? It is, Julian. It's, it's most certainly more to do with what's actually happening in the relationship as opposed to the label put on a particular arrangement. So, for example, it doesn't matter if a relationship is called an independent contracting relationship. If there are enough factors there to stack up to it point to it being more like an employment relationship, then it really makes little difference what the label is. Mm. So the test really is, insofar as the courts are concerned, is what is the substance of the relationship. Now, the point of this is to address um, what might be a sham contracting type relationship, so one that's called a contracting relationship in order to get around certain legal obligations. Um, so it's very important to be aware that there are significant penalties that can be imposed on a business who misrepresents an employment relationship as an independent one. Um, there are also penalties that apply to employers who may um, induce a current or a former employee to enter into an independent contracting arrangement where they're going to be performing substantially the same work. Um, so employers do need to be careful about how they're setting their arrangements up. So uh, we talked last time about employment contracts and you mentioned that there was a recent court case about the importance of the distinction between employees and contractors. Yep, yep. And look, sometimes, Julian, the distinction will be an easy one to pick. Um, say, for example, if you've got um, road transport drivers who own their own vehicles and they contract with a road transport business, but when you've got, say, an office-type situation with many workers under the control of someone, um, then the line can get a bit fuzzy. Now, there was a recent case. This came from the full bench of the federal court concerning several um, insurance sales representatives. So in this case, even though the insurance agents um, signed contracts in the form of independent contracts and they said they viewed themselves as contractors, the court actually found them to be employees. So this saw that particular company having to pay out many thousands of dollars in things like 
unpaid holiday leave and accrued long service leave. I actually read the other day, Julian, that this particular company is considering um, seeking special leave to appeal to the High Court, which would be very costly, but it, it just goes to show that it's vital to get some proper legal advice about the distinction between employees and contractors so as to minimise the risk of confusion and possible court action. Of course. Well, thank you very much for your time again, Rebecca, and we'll have a chat with you another time. Thanks, Julian. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Rebecca McKenzie there from Baker Love Lawyers, helping us to understand the difference between contractors and employees. And, of course, you we need to get it right. Otherwise, it could be quite costly. You're listening to Business, the Law and You on 2NURFM 103.7. Time to pop over to AV Chartered Accountants and have a chat with Tony Vidray. Good afternoon, Tony. Hello, Julian. How are you? You're back from your holiday, but down in Sydney today. I, um, at Port Macquarie, actually. Port Macquarie. So it's, uh, almost as nice as Fiji, <laughs> but uh, not, with not as many hawkers. Uh, any floods up there? Uh, not as many as I've heard as, as in, in the studio. This morning. Yeah, don't tell Todd or Wayne. I can neither confirm nor deny that I left the kitchen tap on last night after Leicester Centre. Now you're all right. It, it came through the roof, I believe. Oh, thank goodness for that. <laughs> that's, so, that's unbelievable. So uh, we're we're talking about uh, foreign income today. Foreign income. Yes, there've been a few uh, a few changes and. Uh, I guess while we were listening to Colour Our World, the, uh, the tax officer intent on, on ruining our world. What, what happens, the, the basic general rule is that if you're an Australian resident, you have to declare your worldwide sourced income. I have a few people, a few clients who come to me and say, well, I've got a rental property over in the US or over in um, New Zealand, uh, and they live here, and they say, well, I don't have to worry about that because I file a tax return over in the US or over in New Zealand. No, that's not right. You, you have to file the return over there. You have to redeclare it here in Australia and pay tax on it in Australia, mm. and you'll get because of double tax um, treaties, you'll get a credit for the tax that you've paid already, if any, over in that foreign country. But if you're an Australian resident, the net is quite wide, and it it catches all of your your, uh, your foreign earnings. Now, they made a subtle little change in 2009, where if I just give an example, let's say that there you are presenting business the law and you and, and someone over in the UK listens to your program and says, gee, this Julian guy sounds quite good. How about you come over here and uh, present a program over in the UK for, for six months? Now, what used to happen, and of course you paid over in the UK, yeah, yeah, taxed yeah, over yeah. in the UK, even though you're still a resident of Australia, because you're away for more than about three months, those and those earnings are taxed over in the UK. They're, they're, they were actually exempt and so that's one of the ways that the uh, this Labor government has um, saved some money with all the various uh, other cuts that they've made as well. They've now removed that exemption and now you have to pay tax on it in Australia. So you had a lot of expats who were going overseas and working in exotic places like, you know, Dubai and the United Arab Emirates and Singapore and places where there was the tax rates were, you know, from zero to, to very, very low and getting away with exempt earnings and coming back with buckets of money here in Australia, they've removed that exemption totally. So that exemption now only applies if you're an overseas aid worker or um, you're part of a defence force or you're part of a charitable organisation, all those wonderful you know, types of charity works that are, that are done overseas. But, but you're not paying double tax. You, they're, they're making an allowance for tax you do pay overseas. You do get a credit. So, for example, yeah. if you pay, say, whatever the rate is, say you pay 5% over in the UK, but your tax rate here in Australia is 30%, where well, you just have to top up that, that difference. And sadly, I mean, Australia's tax rates are quite generally higher mm. than a lot of other places um, in the world. Certainly for, uh, for personal income taxes, we're still 
um, quite up there, um, you know, compared to a lot of OECD com- uh, countries and a lot of other countries, some countries like Dubai and United Arab Emirates, they, they just don't even have any personal income tax um, at all. They obviously get their revenue from their tax revenues from, from other sources. So it's quite lucrative to earn that money over there and, and, uh, and try and frame right, an right. argument. But the, the key is you have to actually pay tax in a foreign country, and if you don't, it's still taxable um, here in Australia. But now they've just changed the whole lot and say, whatever you pay overseas, you can just, whether it's zero or 5%, you, uh, you have to redeclare it here in Australia. What if, what if their tax rate's higher? Do you get a refund? No, you don't. No, you don't. <laughs> it's, a, it's a foreign tax credit, and there's a whole series of funny old rules where... You uh, you get to carry it forward for a number of years, and yeah, if you if, they, if you don't use it within about five years, you end up you end up losing it. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's quite interesting. Okay. One, one final comment too, um, and something that I've noticed on the <coughs> on the airways, this wonderful new computer system of the tax office that we've been talking about, the 750 million or 800 million that they spent, is picking up everything. So we actually saw an incident where. A client was uh, received a letter saying, "Oh, we've noticed that you've received uh, four hundred and fifty thousand um, dollars from this overseas country. Unless you tell us what it is within twenty-eight days, we'll assume that it's some um, foreign income." Now, what mm. actually happened in that situation? It was actually a deceased estate from a yeah. relative, a distant relative, and uh, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> if you're in that situation, receiving money from overseas, Still the tax it. office, Austrac, the federal government, they will see it. Keep all your paperwork so that you can prove that it. Um, it's not actually foreign income or investment earnings because you will. The onus of proof is always on, on you, the, uh, the taxpayer. Yeah, mm. That's it. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Tony. We'll have a chat with you again back in Newcastle next week. Stay dry. Bye. Cheers. Tony Vidray there from AV Chartered Accountants, just assuring us that if we do have some foreign income, make sure we do declare it. Well, now it's one uh, thirty. Time to pop over and have a chat with Christina Sikiatis. That minute on innovation. Good afternoon, Christina. Hi, Julian. So we're going to talk about a bank today, eh? And, and we don't usually yeah, think of banks yeah, as being innovative. It's so hard not to mention their name. Um, and I know we spoke about it last week, but I'd just like to go in a little bit more detail um, about the BRW 30 Most Innovative Countries. So this particular banking organisation came in at number two. And normally you'd think it would be hard for a bank to drive innovation. Everything's so regulated, and the main reason for existing, I guess, is to manage risk, not to, not to necessarily take it. But in a true example of top-down focus on innovation, this organisation understands that in order to move forward, you need to grow and innovate. So the real commitment starts with aligning innovation to the strategic business of the organisation. One of the questions that, that um, the particular representative posed was, how are you going to measure it? Are you going to measure it in productivity or profit or employee engagement? So it's not only measured in bottom line profit. There's, there's other ways that you can measure the innovation within an organisation. There's also an understanding in this organisation that innovation takes time and it needs to be at the core of the business. I think the speaker referred to it as being in the DNA of the business. You've got to invest time, you've got to invest money. And innovation can be used particularly for problem solving and there needs to be a reward recognition system that goes along with that. At this organisation, they've got what they call an innovation academy and any employee can put up an idea, everyone votes on it and every quarter some start-up funding is allocated to the, the, the winner, if you like. 
fundamentally the most important thing in any business is that you do what you say that you're going to do. And have we got time for a little bit extra? Yeah, you're going to mention 3M and 3M were doing oh, this oh, sort yes, of... Because everyone's aware that, that 3M have this 20% um, you know, work on something outside of your business policy and that that's where the post-its were, were um, or that's how the post-it notes were actually, actually came about. But what I didn't know um, and found out recently, uh, and I may sound silly saying that, is, is that... When the idea was presented to the marketing department, the marketing department thought that there wasn't going to be enough profit in it. So they actually went, no, they rejected the whole, the whole post-it scenario. The inventor put his innovating cap on, went home, um, made up some, some packs, sent them to the secretaries of all the middle managers, so he used his own market, basically, to demonstrate that there was a great need for the product. The secretaries thought they were fantastic, and that's how the actual post-it became a marketable product. Yeah, it's uh, sometimes we have to be innovative with our ways of convincing other people, don't we? Absolutely. And that, and that was actually in a little book called uh, uh, In Search of Excellence by Tom Peters back in the mid-80s. There you go. Mm. So something, something's old and new again, and just because something's old doesn't mean that, it, that it's necessarily a bad thing either, does it? No, it doesn't. Well, thanks for your time again, uh, Christina. We'll have a chat with you again next week. Okay, thanks, Julian. Thank have you. a great week. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Christina Sikiat is there with a minute on innovation, and yeah, it's amazing how many organisations do catch on to this innovation, and if it's top-down and the systems are there, we can see some results. Well, thank you for being with me for the last half hour. I hope you've enjoyed the program. We've also looked at uh, contractors versus employees, which is sometimes a very grey area, but important that we get on top of that. And next week we're going to talk about insolvency with Dan- Daniel Quinn from SV Partners. We'll enter the world of tax again with Tony Vidray of AV Chartered Accounts and that minute on innovation with Christina Sikiatis and, of course, some other tips to motivate you and improve your business. I'd love your company at the same time for business, the law and you. Until then, have a safe and prosperous week and, as Dr. Zeus once said, how did I get so late so soon?